You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, division of endocrinology and metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What is the value of behavioral change for people living with diabetes for their professional counterparts? Joining us to discuss positive behavioral change for people living with diabetes is Professor of Pediatrics and Public Health at the University of California, Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Neil Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman, welcome to ReachMD. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Well, Neil, I know that, um, you know, as a diabetes specialist and someone living with diabetes, I don't think there's anything more important than behavioral change. And a lot of our listeners are out there in the trenches and may not really have enough time to really address this important area. So let's, let's, let's give a, a broad opening to what are the assumptions uh, that healthcare providers have when, when it comes to behavioral changes? The first thing is healthcare providers uh, sometimes have great assumptions that people are, do have the capacity to change and do have the capacity to adopt and sustain healthy behaviors. Unfortunately, occasionally, uh, some people have a preconceived bias. Uh, that says this is a person, for example, with type 2 diabetes who might be overweight and sedentary and has been that way their whole life and how are they ever going to change? Well, that's really not true. Uh, with proper support, with good motivation, with good understanding, uh, people do have the capacity to change. They do have the ability to adopt and sustain new health-promoting behaviors and, and I think our role as clinicians is to facilitate that, to help uh, make the healthy choice the easy choice for them. Even worse than that, assuming that people cannot change, is assuming these folks are quote-unquote non-compliant because they don't adhere to the recommendations that they are giving that patient, like, you know, start exercising, start eating right, start testing your blood sugar, lose weight before the next visit. And I think there's a lot of negative attitudes towards uh, caregivers, towards their patients. And I, I can see how this comes about as well. You can get pretty frustrated as a caregiver not seeing any change over time. Absolutely. Uh, part of it is that we as clinicians have been trained to, to, to prescribe medicine and to think in one particular way that our role is to do certain things. Uh, and I think it's essential that clinicians change that attitude and recognize that their patients are asking for help, they are asking for support, uh, that with the new technologies around, uh, as well as even the old technologies, patients can uh, effectively change those behaviors, and we clinicians need to be part of that process for patients. What kind of behavioral data is out there regarding uh, people living with diabetes? I mean, I, I think it's good to, to look at what studies have already been done. The Hallmark study was the Diabetes Prevention Program uh, that was done back in the late 90s. It was over a 3,200-subject, 27-site, randomized control trial, uh, I always say for a gazillion million dollars funded by the NIH to really see, could you help overweight sedentary adults? Uh, in this case, they did not yet have diabetes. They were pre-diabetic. And could you help them to uh, eat better, be more active, uh, lose weight, keep it off, and lower the progression from pre-diabetes to diabetes? And, and, and it was amazing. It became a landmark study, replicated around the world, and was able to show that uh, a one-on-one face-to-face coach was able to help an individual uh, lose weight and, and keep it off um, if they came to visit them, so to speak, in their office about 16 times and, and for weekly, hour-long sessions and periodically uh, thereafter. It was able to lower the progression from prediabetes from 11% to 5%, a 58% reduction. It was cost-effective and cost savings, uh, even at a couple $3,000 per patient. The problem was it wasn't affordable and it wasn't scalable. 
because it costs so much. The other major study that's out is for people with type 2 diabetes uh, called the Look Ahead Study. It's, I think, a 15-year randomized study uh, with a large number of, of patients. It's had its fourth year of data coming out, and it, again, uh, compared intensive lifestyle to uh, good medical therapy to control and was able to show that intensive lifestyle at four years, the study's not completed, but at four years was able to help individuals diagnosed with type 2 diabetes lose weight, keep it off, lower their uh, average uh, A1C, lower their cholesterol, lower their blood pressure, requiring less medication to make that happen uh, compared to medical treatment. So I think there's been a couple studies uh, in the U.S. as well as other parts of the world that have really demonstrated that when done properly with support, uh, people are able to change their behaviors, are able to become healthier um, and improve their outcomes. You know, Neil, um, I was an investigator in the diabetes prevention program, and I remember when we were designing the study, there was a big controversy. Should we have an intervention arm with behavioral change because it was too expensive? And I'm sure glad we decided to do it, even though it cost more than the groups where patients just took a pill or did not take a pill. Um, it just showed how powerful behavior modification can be. So the value to patients, I think, is pretty obvious. You know, you give people lots of attention, you coach them along, you're going to see positive changes. What about their counterpart? That's what I'm interested in, the healthcare professional. What kind of values do they get out of this? Well, I mean, I think first uh, is when a healthcare professional recognizes that he or she can be part of a patient's life. Uh, to me, that's a gift that we as clinicians are able to experience an intimate relationship with someone and to help them in something they think is important. And helping them to lose weight, to feel healthier, to uh, look better if that's uh, an important issue uh, by itself is very, very important. But not only that, we're obviously making a major impact on their disease. If you look at that data from the Look Ahead study, for example, by being able to help someone improve their lifestyle, it improved their diabetes control, improved their long-term outcome. You know, clinicians and, and the clinical world has always been interested in patient outcomes. Uh, the challenge has been that the money that goes to pay for those treatments hasn't always been there. So as clinicians, as a clinical setting, if we want to improve outcomes, particularly for the prevention and treatment of chronic illness, we've got to be in the behavior change business. Otherwise, we're not going to get the outcomes that we want, and we're not going to get the outcomes that financially will be incentivized to get. Thank you, Neil. Uh, hey, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Neil Kaufman. We are discussing behavior change for people living with diabetes and healthcare professionals. Well, Neil, before we get into some new um, ways to reach out to patients and providers, how do we justify the current methods that we use for behavioral change? I, I don't think they're working that well. Well, the, the current methods um, go back to you know, the one-on-one -on -one conversation that a clinician has with a patient. Um, there's some evidence that that works. For example, I'd call it the halo effect, that when the clinician says you should stop smoking because it would be good for your health, patients tend to listen to that. Now, is it very powerful? No, but it does have, have some impact, uh, certainly compared to other people saying you should stop smoking or should eat better. But that, it's naive to think that, that a single event or a single concept will, will make that happen. I think if you look instead at the uh, concentrated and coordinated approaches to behavior change, so whether it's an individual diabetes educator who not only understands the content of what a person needs to know, but uses, for example, motivational interviewing 
doing, asking questions in such a way that the patient decides and describes what he or she wants to work on, what's important to that person at that moment, helps them to self-discover the way that they're going to get support from their family and friends. All of those things uh, can work. They seem to work very, very well when they're in groups. So there's a number of people looking at taking the diabetes prevention program and using groups whether it's in the YMCA uh, or other settings. The problem is for some people, they don't like to come to groups, and for others, they can't get to the group because they live too far away or, or the timing or the, or the scheduling and the like. So it does seem to work, but it does require significant effort, and it requires a commitment by the healthcare provider and the whole team to get those messages out whenever they can be, whether it's by the nurse, the doctor, the educator, the dietitian, et cetera. Let's talk about DPS Health uh, and this online program that you have developed with your long history of you know, taking care of patients and in the public sector. Six years ago, I left my academic position uh, and set up a software development company so we can help clinicians help large numbers of patients one at a time. And it became obvious to me uh, at that moment, uh, internet six years ago, and including cell phones now, was a way to augment the way a clinician serves patients, to extend the practice of medicine so that an individual clinician spending less of his or her time could actually impact many, many people. So the story of, of the particular program, uh, Steve, you're referring to, we call the Virtual Lifestyle Management Service, or VLM. University of Pittsburgh, which had been the uh, setting, the faculty there, had created the original diabetes prevention program, Intensive Lifestyle Limb, that we talked about earlier. In 2006, they got a grant from the U.S. Air Force to take the face-to-face, one-on-one diabetes prevention program and transform it using the internet as the delivery mechanism to see if you could scale it up to large numbers of people at a much lower cost. They uh, contracted with our company and team and our technology to build the application for them. It took us about six months to build it. They then tested it uh, in a research environment, showed that it worked. It got results that were comparable to the DPP. In, in frankness, it wasn't you know 3,000 person study. It wasn't randomized, but it gave good results. Uh, they then have now uh, received two uh, fundings, one from Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research, ARC, and the other Department of Defense, and they're in the process of doing two randomized controlled trials with the program. It's now version three because we've enhanced it uh, with their, their direction over the last years. And then about two years ago, they licensed back to me the right to market and sell and deploy to implement the online DPP called the VLM in a variety of settings. Describe to them what the program is and, and how could they get their patients involved. The program is basically a year-long program in which patients log onto the internet. Uh, they spend about 25 to 30 minutes a week, or they could spread it out over um, more than 16 weeks. And they receive a lesson that's interactive with a narrator who speaks to them. They fill out a workbook. They, they create an action plan, very similar to the DPP. And then they're taught how to track and plan their physical activity, how to track their diet. They enter that very quickly into a web page that, that keeps track of it. They then see how they've done during the past week on their calories, their grams of fat, their physical activity, and the like. And if they met their goal, the goal increases a little bit, so they do a little bit better next week. If they didn't, they're kept at the same goal. And then a coach uh, who's been trained how to use the technology looks at a dashboard of the patient's experience and says, oh, look at this. Sally, you did great last week. Keep up the good work oh, it seems like you have a question, can I help you? But instead of an hour a week, they spend two or three minutes a week. And therefore, a coach is able
able to help large numbers of patients because only a tiny little bit of their time is spent. All the rest of it is is done uh, by the patient. Well, thank you, Neil. And I want to let our listeners know that uh, the best way to find out more information is to go to dpshealth.com and learn more about uh, the services. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Pediatrics and Public Health at the University of California, Los Angeles in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Neil Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.